0: Morning Keystone. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning in verses 6 through 19. Uh, Last week, Pastor Brandon started a little mini-series that I'll be finishing up in the next two weeks uh, that we've titled Jesus Heartbeat. And we're looking at John chapter 17, which is uh, traditionally referred to as Jesus High Priestly Prayer. And Brandon made the case last week to start out that you can tell what someone cares about, what they're passionate about, what's important to them by listening in on their prayers. And so in this case, we're getting a window into what Jesus cares about by listening in onto his prayers. And I would also add to that, you can tell what's important to someone, what they care about, what matters to them as they near the end of something in their lives. And so if you've been at Keystone recently, you know Pastor Keith is preaching through a series called The Final Countdown, which is really just an umbrella for a bunch of mini-series. And we're hearing some of the things that are most important to him because that theme is ultimately based on the fact that his days as a preaching pastor at Keystone are coming to a close, that he only has so many sermons left to Give to us, and so we hear what's really uh, what he's really passionate about, what's really important for him. Some of the ways that God has really shaped him. John chapter thirteen through seventeen are traditionally called the Upper Room discourse, as Jesus speaks and teaches with his disciples. But we could easily just as well call it Jesus' final countdown, because he knows the end is near. He he knows the next day he's going to be crucified. He knows he's about to leave this world. And so as he speaks to and prays for his disciples, we see his heartbeat, his passions, what's most important to him coming through. Last week, we saw it for his glory and for his father's glory, as as Pastor Brandon preached on. And this week, we see it for his followers, his disciples' holiness. And so we can pick up in chapter 17, verse 6, and we'll read through the end of, uh, read through verse 19. Here's what Jesus prays for. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Father, we've already heard this morning and sung this morning that we uh, are desperately in need of your Holy Spirit to work in us. God, we gather on a Sunday in part to be reminded of how absolutely and fully dependent we are on you. It's easy for us throughout our weeks to forget that because of the business, because of all that happens. But when we gather, we're reminded we need you, we need your spirit. That the Christian life, that knowing Christ, that living for Christ is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. And so I pray this morning that you would speak and you would work and you would move by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a saying that I'm sure you all are familiar with. It's a saying that maybe you were heard taught by your parents. Or if you're a parent, maybe you say it to your children. Or maybe you heard it instilled by teachers or a boss. Or maybe you've just heard it from people who have succeeded in this world in some way. Hard work pays off. Hard work pays off. Uh, Rachel Simmons, who is a teacher at Smith College, wrote an article in Time magazine, and she talked about a student athlete who visited her office. She said this, A star athlete at the college where I work recently stopped by my office. After committing a few unforced errors during a weekend match, she was, several days later, riven by self-criticism and distracted on the field. I can't stop beating myself up, she told me. I'm at peak fitness and I practice hard. How is this happening? This student, like many I teach, believes she should be able to control the outcomes of her life by virtue of her hard work. It's a mentality verging on invincibility, a sense that all-nighters in the library, a jam-packed calendar, and hours on the field should get her exactly where she needs to go in life. Nothing can stop me but myself. We tend to take that belief, hard work pays off, and apply it to our lives as Christians, I believe. Yes, we, we know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that we can say that phrase like parrots at times, which is good. And yet, I wonder if at the same time we're still so prone to think, the harder I work, the holier I will be, and perhaps even the happier God will be with me as I grow. In other words, if I try harder, if I'm more disciplined, if I read the right books, if I listen to the right messages and the right podcasts, and I do the right things, then I will grow as a Christian, or I'll grow in holiness. And it's not that any of those things are necessarily wrong, it's just that it turns growth as a Christian into a formula to be followed. A formula that then when we don't see the growth we want, we beat ourselves up and we criticize ourselves and we think it's because I'm not working hard enough. Or when we do grow, we essentially end up patting ourselves on the back and saying, I'm a better person. I'm more like Christ because I was disciplined and I worked hard. After all, hard work pays off. And I don't want to minimize this morning that growing as a Christian requires effort. Absolutely. But I want to point out from this passage that we read, this prayer of Jesus for his disciples, for their holiness, that our growth as Christians and in holiness is not primarily because of our hard work, but our growth in holiness is because of God's grace at work in us. That's the the big idea that you might have on your notes if you have a, a copy of them. Our growth in holiness is, is God's grace at work in us. We can see this by looking at what I'm going to say: the foundation of holiness, the power for our holiness, and the purpose for our holiness. But before we jump into those, I think it's good just to have a definition of holiness for us to work from. Because there's lots of different ways we could probably define holiness, and it's one of those words that maybe we just throw around as Christians, and we forget what, what does this mean? And this is by no means the, the only definition or maybe even the best definition, but it's just what I'm working from this morning, that holiness is to become like Jesus, to become like Jesus, that Jesus is the standard of holiness as God and as human. He shows us what it's like to be holy in all that we think and do and say and, and feel, And this is where, as Christians, we should realize there's a sense in which if we're trusting in Christ, we're already perfectly holy. Because when we trust in Jesus, God sees us as Jesus is, perfectly holy. It's what people would refer to as definite or definitive sanctification. Big word for it, we're already holy in Christ. And yet, anyone who's a Christian for any amount of time realizes I don't think, act, feel, and speak like Jesus much in my life. I've got a lot of room to grow. There's room for me to grow in holiness. We, we can think of this idea of already being holy, growing in holy, maybe like we might think of marriage. If you have a husband or a wife, you are no more married right now in this moment than you were at the moment when you said your vows and the pastor declared you to be married. And yet the likelihood is you knew very little of what it meant to be married in that moment. As a 23-year-old getting married, I read a book by John Piper and a book by Tim Keller, and I thought, I know all there is to know about being married. And now I look at 23-year-olds who get married, and I think, you have no idea. Just as if you're 40, 50, 60 or older, you look at 31-year-old Kyle, and you think, Kyle, you have no idea. And you're right. You're right. Because the, the longer that you're married, the more you've probably grown what it means to be married, even though you were no less married the moment that you said your vows. And we can say the same is true of holiness. We are holy when we come to faith in Christ, and yet we grow in holiness for the rest of our lives here on earth. And I think the problem comes when we start to think it's my hard work that accomplishes that growth rather than God's grace at work in me. And we can see that first of all by just looking at the foundation of our holiness, that we grow because we belong to Jesus. If we go back to our passage that we read this morning, verses six through 10, if you look at them again, they're filled with language of gave or given as well as like ownership language. They were yours. They are now mine because you gave them to me. They are both mine and yours. It's this idea that the disciples, the followers of Christ, belong to him because God has given them to Jesus. And he talks about that he's revealed the Father to them, what God is like, and that they've kept Jesus' word. They've accepted, known, believed who Jesus is and what he said, because they belong to Jesus, because God has given them to Jesus. This is no less true of these first disciples in that room with Jesus than it is of followers of Christ 2,000 years later. That we belong to Christ because God, has the Father, has given us to Christ. And our faith is evidence of that. Now, why does that matter when it comes to talking about holiness and growing as a Christian? I'm going to point out two reasons, and they're really just flip sides of the fact that we belong to Christ through faith because God has given us to him. The first is, our good behavior does not secure our belonging with Jesus. We're so prone to believe, or at least I'm so prone to believe at times, that if I really want to belong to Jesus, I really want to be in with him, then I need to behave better. But this passage says we belong to Jesus because God has given us to Jesus, that we are his and we are the father's. We belong to him quite apart from any behavior on our own and we say sure I belong to Jesus and yet I I wonder sometimes if we picture ourselves kind of on the outer skirts of his disciples kind of riding the bench and think if I really want to get in really want to get into his good graces then I better start behaving better than I am right now we think and believe this because in almost every other area of our lives we behave in order to belong in some way, or we behave in order to belong better. That with any group of people, we think if I start to act, talk, maybe dress differently, I will belong, I'll be more in with this group of people. As a very impressionable uh, 19-year-old, I went away to a GAP program for five months. And I came back with long hair to my shoulders, a lip ring, And a brand new wardrobe that featured some very tight skinny jeans. You probably wouldn't have hired that version of Kyle as your next preaching pastor. Why did I come back like that? Because the Gap program that I went to featured mainly snowboarders. And so I thought to belong more, to belong better, to be more in, I need to start to dress and talk and act more like this group of snowboarders. Sure, I knew in some sense I belonged from the start, but I thought the, the more I behave like them, act like them, the more that I will belong, be in with them. And as Christians, we're prone to believe the same thing, that the better I behave, the more I'll be in with Jesus. And maybe sometimes we believe that, Because sometimes that's what we do in the church. That sure, we belong to the church because we put our faith in Jesus. But if someone really wants to be in with us, really wants to belong to us, we expect them to talk like us, act like us, maybe even dress like us. And maybe it's not even things that are in line with the scripture, but just kind of the the culture that we have. And yet, that's not Christianity. Christianity is we belong to Jesus through faith in him because the Father has given us to him, period. And any behavior, any growth flows from that fact. That fact doesn't change. Which leads to the, the second, the flip side, which maybe we're even more prone, I think, to fall to. But our bad behavior does not shake our belonging with Jesus. I can almost guarantee that everyone in this room, myself included, absolutely blew it in some way this week. That that we said something that we were impatient with kids uh, and got angry with them, or said something uh, unkind to a spouse that we knew even as we said it, this is not good, or just talked down uh, about a friend or a coworker or a family member to their face or behind their back, or any other thing that we thought did said or felt, and afterwards thought, why, why did I do that? I shouldn't have. What's wrong with me? And in, in those moments, and, and I know that because I did that this past week, and, and in those moments, we're so prone to think that Jesus' love for us, his passion for us, that it, it drops down a couple of notches. Because after all, we're disgusted with ourselves. Like, why can't I be better? What's wrong with me? And so we think, I, I can't imagine how disgusted Jesus must be with me if I'm this disgusted with myself for acting this way. But who is Jesus passionately praying for in these verses? Disciples who he knows an hour later are gonna run from him, reject him, turn their back on him and desert him in his hour of need. Our sins, our failures, our misbehaviors, don't cool, don't throw water on Jesus' love for us if anything, it's in those moments where we actually experience how much he does love us because we realize it's not our behavior that attracted him to us. It's the fact that we belong to him. This, this past winter, during one of the snowstorms that we had, uh, it was one that came on a Monday. I don't know if there was more than one. But I was outside of our house playing with my son in the snow. And I had our uh, dog outside as well tied to her leash that we have for her. And as we're playing in the snow, uh, there's a field that's right next to our house and I'm kind of looking out the field and all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see our little dog bolting across the field full speed. She had broken off her chain somehow and she was running towards our neighbor's house and then ultimately toward a busy road in the middle of a snowstorm. And, And how did I respond in that moment? I didn't respond by crossing my arms, frowning, and saying, you, you rotten, good-for-nothing dog. You want to run off in a snowstorm? Have it your way. Go. I'm going inside to get some hot chocolate and watch a movie. My instinctive response was, take my son, give him to my brother who lives next to us, and start running across that field to try to catch my dog and to try to woo her back in some way offering her treats, come back. And and when she ran far enough away that I couldn't even see, I came back home and I jumped in my car and went out in a snowstorm and almost got stuck multiple times because it turns out Honda Civics are terrible in snowstorms. And then once that didn't work and I couldn't find her, I came back and did the only thing I knew left to do, pray. God, bring my dog home. Like, I, I don't want her to die in a snowstorm, bring her home. If that's how I respond to my dog, because she belongs to me, running away in a snowstorm, why is it that when I misbehave in some way, when I sin, when I fall short, when I don't live up to what I think Jesus expects of me, I think he's crossing his arms, has a frown, and is thinking, what's wrong with you, Kyle? Because I'm still convinced, and I think a lot of us are deep down, that in some sense, my bad behavior must shake his love for me rather than it being based on the fact that I belong to him because the Father has given him to me and because my faith is in him. That that doesn't change and that's the foundation from which all our holiness, all our growth springs and we're so quick to get that upside down and think the more I behave the better I belong but I would say it's the more we realize how much we belong that then we start to actually grow in that. So we can see God's grace in the, the foundation of our holiness, I think we can also then see it in the power for our holiness. That we grow because of God's continuing grace to us. In verses 6 through 10 that we read, we, we would see that Jesus is praying for his disciples because they belong to him. They are his. And so he prays for them passionately. And then in verses 11 through 16, he continues to pray for his disciples on the basis that he's about to leave them. He says in verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, says to the father. Jesus looks ahead and he knows that there are difficult days ahead for his disciples as he leaves them and as they remain in the world. And so he prays to the father, keep them, hold on to them, continue to be gracious to them. And we can see, first of all, as we look at these verses, that there are great challenges to our growing in holiness, or to our growing as Christians. That the challenges to holiness are great. First of all, Jesus points out the challenge of the fact that as Christians, we are to be in the world, but not of the world, as you probably heard that phrase before. That's where it comes from this passage. The idea that we're supposed to be a part of this world, and yet live differently than this world. Which means that every single day, We face temptations to think, speak, feel, and act in a way with a world that does not know or love God. But then Jesus also says, well, when they keep your word or my word, then the world often hates them. And so on the flip side, we know if we live differently, sometimes we invite hatred. And so our temptations as Christians is always to either separate from the world and kind of form our own little groups just of Christians who think exactly like us, or to assimilate the world and give up what makes us distinct, a belief in obedience to all that Jesus teaches. And Jesus says, I don't want either of those. I'm not praying for either of those. He makes it clear in verse 15, when he says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, which is a gentle, maybe not gentle, rebuke to us when we simply loudly condemn the world out there but only stay in our groups that think just like us. But then he also says but but I don't want them just to assimilate to the world either, right? Jesus makes it clear we're we're not just to blend in the world, but our connection to him because we belong to him is meant to make us be different than the world. Which is a gentle rebuke to all of us when we simply want to fit in. Not offend anyone. And do and say and think and feel what makes us look good in the eyes of the world. And any Christian who's evaluated themselves in some ways knows that we're so prone to either side of this. That we're prone to separate at times. I don't want anything to do with this world. Or we're prone at other times to give up what makes us distinct. and say I just want to fit in. And that sometimes we do both in the same day probably. And so the challenge to growing in holiness is great. And it's not just that we face that challenge, but then we're told in verse 15, we have the challenge of an evil enemy because Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That we have an enemy in Satan who is always actively opposed to you and I growing as a Christian or even continuing as a Christian. We live in a world that will tempt us and hate us And we have an enemy that simply wants to destroy us every second of our lives. The challenges to growing as a Christian are massive, massive. Some of you have probably seen uh, the movie Miracle on Ice. If you haven't seen it, you're probably familiar with that term. A term that refers to the 1980s uh, men's U.S. Olympic national team who won the 1980s Olympics and got a gold medal. And the background of the story is that uh, their team was not at all supposed to make it in this tournament. That they only had four players who had any even minor league experience. They were just mainly amateurs. They were the youngest team in the tournament. And everyone expected they're going to lose all their games. And so when they made it out of their group stage, people were surprised. And then they ran up against the Soviet Union, who was made up of pretty much all professional players and who had won the last five out of the six gold medals at the Olympics. And people think, the challenges are massive. There's no way they win this. There's no way. And so if you've seen the movie or you've even maybe watched that game, you know as time run out, runs out and they end up winning the game, the commentator in the background is loudly exclaiming, do you believe in miracles? Right? The idea of this, the challenges were so great here. The fact that they won is a miracle when we look at the challenges we face to growing as a Christian, the fact that we would grow at all is a miracle. It's no less, I believe, a miracle that we wake up each morning trusting in Jesus and growing to be like Jesus than it is that we became a Christian in the first place. It's no less God's grace at work in us. It's no less evidence that he's being gracious to us When he should give up on us. And we see in these verses 11 through 16 that while the challenges to holiness are great, God's gracious grip on our lives is greater. Verses 11 through 16 ring with this word keep, keep, keep. Father, keep them in your name. I have kept them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Jesus is asking that the Father would hold on to his followers and preserve them by his grace through this life. We we might get the picture of a little 3-year-old child who's about to cross a busy intersection with cars going both ways at massive speeds. Cars that threaten to block his progress or just run him over. And as he steps out, his father reaches down, grabs tightly onto his hand and walks him slowly across and that the reason that he makes it across is because there's someone much older, wiser, and more powerful than him that's holding on to him every step of the way. The reason that we grow any bit in our Christian lives is because there's God who's bigger, wiser, stronger, and so gracious who's holding on to us and guiding us every step of the way. What, like what an incredible assurance it should be if your faith is in Christ that you have a father who holds on to you and a savior who's constantly praying for you. I, as I read this passage this week, I, I to think of words that I've heard in a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And the lines I, I love from that are t- where it sings, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. The fact that our lives demonstrate any holiness at all, any growth at all, is evidence of God's continuing, preserving grace in us which means that anytime we see any growth or someone else sees growth in us, it should rebound to praise to God. And and that would also mean that as we want to grow, as we seek to grow, we should focus our time on calling out for more of God's grace to help us through the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us. Because remember, John chapter 17 follows up John chapter 16 where God said, I'm going to give you my spirit or where Jesus said, I'm going to send you my spirit. Our growth is fully dependent on God continuing to work his grace in us. Which also means that as we struggle to grow in some area of our lives we should spend more time pleading with God God, be, be gracious, help me in this area, give me more power through your spirit. Than we do trying to come up with strategies to try harder. And I think Many times we're prone to focus on the strategies before we focus on, God, help me, I'm so desperate and I can't grow here apart from your grace. We see God's grace in the fact that our behavior doesn't determine our belonging, in the fact that we need his grace in us to be able to keep growing and moving through this life as Christians. And then lastly, I'd say we also see it in the very purpose for our holiness that we can observe in this passage. That the purpose for our holiness is that we grow for our joy and for the sake of the world. In verse 13, if you look back at this passage again, it's a verse that kind of sticks out as you read through it. And maybe you make sure you ask, well, why, why is that one in there? Jesus says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they my followers may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In the flow of the passage, it just sticks out. It's like, okay, that's, that's a little bit weird. It kind of doesn't, f- seems to maybe not fit with what else Jesus is saying here. But we've got to remember this prayer is one part of a larger teaching of Jesus from chapter 13 to 17. And this verse echoes almost line for line or word for word, chapter 15, verse 11, where Jesus says this, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's almost the same thing. He says, here, here's, during his prayer, I, I'm speaking these things while in the world so that these fathers may have my joy in them and the joy may be full. And right before chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says these words, As the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in my love. As we, we look at those verses together, see that, there is this connection between our obeying God, growing as Christians, and having Christ's joy in us, being happy, joyful people. That there's a direct connection, I believe, to our holiness and our joy. And that Jesus is praying for us to be holy so that we might be more joyful as well. To which I would first of all say, Don't separate holiness from happiness. I think there's a great lie out there that both many non-Christians believe as well as many Christians believe. And it's this, that I've got to choose between being holy or happy. I've got to choose between either obeying God or being fully happy in this life right now. In other words, I can do whatever I want, live however I want to, completely ignore God's commands and be happy. Or I can sacrifice at least a part of my happiness and do what God wants and live as he wants me to and pursue holiness. And yet, Jesus seems to know the more that we grow in holiness, the more that we'll be happy as well. The more that we'll have his joy in us. And if that sounds counterintuitive, it's because we have bought into the lie that to be happy, we have to follow our own hearts and that to be holy, we have to sacrifice some sense of happiness in this life. Sometimes I wonder if I, as well as maybe more of us, don't view being holy, growing in holiness, becoming like Christ, maybe like a 30 to 40 year old man uh, views buying a minivan. I don't really want that. Uh, I don't think that's going to make me happy, but it's what's best for my family. It's what my wife wants. Therefore, I will do it. And sometimes, might we not view holiness as if, I don't think that's really going to make me happy to do the, obey God in this area, to grow in holiness, but it's what he wants. Therefore, I'll do it. And absolutely, it is what he wants. And we please God by living a holy life. But it's also what ultimately brings us joy. Holiness without happiness is maybe just another form of legalism because it's saying, I'll do what God wants, even though I don't really want to, in hopes that will take care of me and do good for me. There there are a lot of stiff upper lip, at times frowning Christians who give holiness a really bad rap in our world. Myself included a lot of times. Jesus says, you want to have my joy full in you? I'm praying that their joy, my joy be full in there. I'm also praying that they be holy. Those things go together. Thomas Brooks, who's a Puritan uh, who wrote in the 1600s said, an absolute fullness of holiness will make an absolute fullness of happiness. When our holiness is perfect, our happiness shall be perfect. And if this were attainable on earth, there would be but little reason for men to long to be in heaven. Jesus isn't praying for us to be holy in this passage because he somehow needs our holiness. Like our growth as Christians, our growth in obedience is not this gift that we offer to God that somehow he needs from us. And and again, I want to say, yes, our growth and our holiness pleases him but Jesus is praying for our holiness because he wants us to be happy in him. Just as it was his joy to obey the father, he wants it to be our joy to obey the father as well. And so he connects his prayer for holiness to our joy, as well as to his mission and our mission in the world. Because right after he says praise in verse 17, God sanctify these my followers in your truth. Then he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. To which i think we should say don't separate holiness from mission don't separate holiness from mission our growth in holiness and as christians is part of god's plan to draw people to his son yes people come to faith through people through someone proclaiming the gospel them hearing the words the holy spirit working their heart and them trusting in jesus but that message is not devoid of flesh and blood And in a world where Jesus is no longer physically present, how do people see what he's like? Or how do people see the name of God revealed through the words and the lives of Christ's followers as they reflect what God is like and what Christ is like? I I would guess in some of your own stories, if you're a Christian, part of your story of coming to faith was interacting with other Christians and there was something in those interactions that made you think there's something different. And maybe it wasn't specific behaviors that you could point out, but maybe it was just how they went about life, how they handled adversity, the joy they had, the the presence of Christ that came through them because they belong to Christ. And even though maybe you couldn't say it in that moment, there was just something different and and that was part of what God used to draw you to faith in Christ. That's true of my own story. I guess it's true of a lot of yours. Don't separate holiness from mission. There's often a lot of lamenting by Christians in the U.S. right now. A lot of lamenting about the fact that we live in a post-Christian culture or an anti-Christian culture or whatever label that we give. And sometimes we're known more for complaining about how bad the world is than for anything else. And I want to be careful here and say there, there is absolutely a place for us to lament the evil in the world. Absolutely we should but there should also be a place for us to celebrate that as a culture shifts farther away from Christian values and beliefs, it might open up new opportunities for us as Christians to shine a light and to reach this world with the message of Christ and what he's done. Jesus came not to complain about how dark the world was. He came to be a light in a dark world and then he sent his followers out to be a light in the dark world as well as a as a young child i can remember times in my house growing up where the power went out and not during the day but like at night when it was all dark whether it was uh, a storm or an accident something happened that all the lights went dark and it was really in the, easy in those moments to walk around kind of moping and complaining because after the, life just got more uncomfortable. My, my TV just shut off. I can't watch anymore. Uh, our air conditioning shut off, and now it's going to get hot. Our big desktop computer that we had shut off, and now I can't play NHL 95 or get on AOL Instant Messenger. This is rough. What was helpful in those moments was not, though, to have people walking around complaining about the lights being off, but for someone in our family to grab a flashlight and turn it on in the midst of the darkness. What the world needs is not Christians who simply walk around complaining or predicting how bad things might get. But Christians, because we belong to Christ, because we've experienced his grace in our lives, because God's continuing to preserve us, shining a light, even if it's so, so dim, which it probably often is, and as the world might grow darker, that light might shine brighter. Don't separate our holiness from the mission that Christ has given us in this world. Jesus finishes his prayer with these words, and this is what we'll wrap up with. He says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That, that word consecrate there is actually just Sanctify. Uh, It's, I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified. Or in other words, I'm setting myself apart so that they might be set apart through relationship with me. Because we should stop and ask, if you haven't already asked this morning, how can a people like us, who are so unholy at many times in our lives, confidently say we belong to a God who is perfectly holy? How how can people who who screw up so often taking two steps forward and one step back or two steps back and three steps back at times confidently say God will continue to be gracious to us? How, How can a people shine a light in this dark world when we were a part of it and sometimes maybe we look more like it than we really want to? Because Jesus set himself apart for us. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He's the only one who was ever perfectly holy. And then he set himself apart to die in our place. And by dying in our place deals with our unholiness. It's because Jesus set himself apart to death on a cross that we're set apart to belong to him and have life in him. It's because Jesus set himself apart to judgment against all sin that we can confidently say God will be gracious to us no matter what and therefore can live lives of holiness as we pursue him. Joyful holiness, shining a light in a dark world. And now, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he lives to intercede for us. That even right in this moment, Jesus is praying for you and for me. And I think he's praying something similar to what he prayed for these original disciples. It's his work, both in the past and in the present, that enables us to grow as Christians. Let's pray. Jesus, it seems too wonderful, too great to believe that right now you stand before a perfectly holy Father, yourself perfectly holy, and plead our innocence and pray for us. And we we rest in that and we look to that and we say continue to plead for us, continue to pray for us, and by your grace, please continue to help us grow in what it means to know, to love, and to obey you with all our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.